I'm Bay, and you're listening to Bay Baltimore, a weekly pop culture and society podcast recorded in a quiet neighborhood in Baltimore. This episode, of course, I watched Interview with a Vampire on AMC, that, that new series, and I want to talk about it because I have so many feelings about it. I watched the movie like everybody else did. I did not read the source material, but my mama did. And I know how the movie, the 1994 what for movie was different than the book or how it deviated. And I am appreciative of how the show seems to deviate from the movie and get back to the book a little bit. But I mean, not super close. It still deviates from the source material. But I like it. Um, So I want to talk about it. um, And do what I do best. Talk about a bunch of different things that (laughs) meander. I'm going to meander a little bit. But I'm going to get back to the point. um, Because this is a really, really well acted show. And some of the subject matter in the series is interesting. But first... I can't not um, talk about this particular subject because it is what once I considered to be something that was so distant is actually closer to me than I realized. Um, And I'll explain. So two weeks ago, everybody has heard by now, two weeks ago, Adnan Syed was released from... um, Maryland State Department of Corrections custody and released on bail or not bail, but like released and sent home. I think he's on probation, but he's sent home and he's probably somewhere in the Catonsville area, which is not super far from here. Uh, And probably at this moment connected in some way or maybe has already by now gone to, um, prayer at the um, Islamic Society Baltimore where he used to pray and serve and worship before the arrest um, back in 1999. And two days ago, um, Heyman Lee, the young woman whose life was taken back in 1999 for whom um, Adnan was accused and convicted of doing the deed, uh, perpetrating the crime, her family, her family's lawyer rather, um, submitted a petition related to Adnan's release and how it was explained to me from lawyers on social media. Um, I actually should probably ask my brother, but I'm pretty sure I, I have the gist of it. And the gist is that he was released. So Adnan Sayed's uh, lawyer, whose name I can't remember, um, submitted paperwork saying, hey, listen, like if you listen to Serial, Serial, um, the reporter whose name I can't remember. But anyway, Serial, everybody's listened to that by now. If you listen, there is a, a new um, episode uh, up and it's like 17 minutes or so. And it details why he was released, but I'll just paraphrase real quickly. Long story short, some, some things have come up that made the state 
the state's attorney not necessarily think that Adnan was innocent, but rather recognized that there were some failings on the police and the prosecutors in handling his case that necessitated him being released so that justice could be served. Whether or not it's going back to him or whether or not it's going back to two other suspects that are now in on their radar, it matters not. This needs to be, we need to do over. And so that's what the state acknowledged it and um, at the behest of Ednan's attorney. Um, and so it was granted. The, the state granted his release and he was released. And two days ago, Heyman Lee's family's attorney said, hey, wait a minute, we were not given proper notice of this action happening. Um, and we want to slow down the process. And when I first read it, I thought, what do you mean slow down the process? Put him back in holding until you can determine whether or not he should be released based on like whether or not the state was correct in, in making this um, decision. But actually, after listening to, well, no, reading, listening to the podcast, but then reading, um, because the update, the serial update doesn't tell you, doesn't, it doesn't include Heyman Lee's family's attorney's response. Um, They just tell you that her brother was present via a video monitoring monitoring system or something like that. Maybe it was Zoom. Um, And expressed, I'm not... I want justice done, whatever that looks like. I want the murderer of my sister to be convicted. If it's not Adnan, I need the state to get this person, basically. Um, and so that's what was, that's what the serial story story has you, Sarah Koenig, that's who it is, Sarah Koenig. That's how she reports, that's what she reports the brother said in, in court. And then the judge rendered the verdict. Um, And so two days ago, the lawyer, the lawyer for Heyman Lee's family said, hey, wait a minute, we weren't given proper notice. Um, You know, we need you to slow this thing down. And then the court responded by saying, that's between y'all, essentially. That ain't got nothing to do with Adnan. The, you, your issue, attorney of Heyman Lee's family, is against the state, and they had the burden of notification. Not Adnan's people, not his, not his attorney. That ain't got nothing to do with Adnan. Um, and so, I don't know where we are now. I don't know what that means. I just, I know that that's. Yeah, that's the that's the recent update that the court the court said, yeah, figure it out. They ain't got nothing to do with Adnan, so stop bringing Adnan into this unless you want to charge him again um, because you have new evidence or better evidence. And I just want to take a step back and say, this is a lot. Again, this has impacted two families for sure, extended families. two families and all the people that it touches it would it touched in the family but then also communities of people there is what you need to know about baltimore 
which is not something that was shared in Serial, even though Sarah Koenig had spent, I don't know if she's Baltimorean or she just spent some time doing reporting here. But Baltimore has huge cultural centers around here. And I don't know that you are aware, but in and around North Avenue, North and Charles, that community, there's a, there's maybe a five to 10 block radius where back in the nineties, back actually the nineties and um, into the early two thousands, it was called little Korea because there were so many um, Korean centers, Korean community centers, um, stores, places where people who spoke Korean could live and work and play. And some of those centers still exist in the area, but it was a whole community. There's actually a huge mural that is on, I cannot remember the name of the building, but it's in where, where I'm talking about is considered still station North, uh, the station North neighborhood. And there's a huge mural of an older Asian man. And he's actually Korean. And he is the architect, the person that got all of these businesses, these centers, these resources to thrive in station North. And so he's, he's been immortalized in a mural. Um, on the side of a building. It is the one of the largest murals that I'm aware of in the city. And so there's a huge, and I say all that to say there's a huge Korean community here. So, so large that there's a, a Korean language newspaper here in the city. And then on the other side, there is a huge Muslim faith community here too. Um, I would say, Baltimore is a haven for new immigrants. It just is. We have a ton of North African new immigrants, actually not even North African, um, new immigrants from African countries and Middle Eastern countries, like a large majority. And I couldn't exactly tell you why, but if you remember like last year I did I did a story on human trafficking and I said that a lot of, and, and follow me, a lot of Eastern Europeans um, especially the young ones will come here or will come to New York. And if they're not cared for, you know, the, the family will send their young people to New York. Excuse me for a better life. Right. And then um, if you're not careful, what has happened is that sometimes these Eastern European girls are snatched up in human trafficking and the ways in which human trafficking can manifest itself is sometimes not all sex work, but it's sometimes labor. And there is a huge pipeline of Eastern European girls being snatched in New York and then immediately put on a bus or put in a car, more likely a bus um, or a van and sent down to Philly, down here to Baltimore, down to DC to be domestics. There is a story, and I think in that story that I was talking about, I can't, I, I think it's I can't remember what it's called, but I did it last year around the summertime. It was probably around August of last year. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely August of last year um, where I was talking about human trafficking. There is an in that in that episode, I talked about um, an Eastern European girl that I whose video I watched on YouTube where she talked about herself being caught up in that 
uh, being a domestic, a for- being in human trafficking, and she was forced to clean houses, um, rich people's houses here in Baltimore, before she escaped through the help of um, some organization. I can't remember the name of it. Um, but it's like a local organization here in, in in Baltimore. But that she she literally escaped. And so I say all that to say there's a lot of new immigrants here. And and outside of that, there are huge religious groups around here. There are huge in Howard County, which is. I don't know how things like if uh, counties in Maryland is a small state. And so if you're not from the United States, counties are jurisdictions where that whole contain multiple cities. I think everybody kind of gets that. They might not use the term county, but um, that's it's it's just a jurisdiction that contains multiple smaller cities. And sometimes in the case of uh, Baltimore, if it's if the city is big enough, it will be its own county. And so Baltimore City is its own county. And then Baltimore City is surrounded by Baltimore County, which includes a bunch of different cities. Howard and, and the if you're from the United States and you already know counties can be as big or small as they you need them to be and the thing that you need to know about Maryland is if you're not in and around Maryland it's small if you pull up the Maryland on the uh, the United States map pull it up on the globe Maryland does not take up a lot of land mass but it has a lot of people in it anyway and in this tiny uh, state in the Union um there are, I think it's 14, 14 counties, something like that. And they're kind of squished up on each other. And so Howard County, when I say Howard County, again, Baltimore City is its own county. So that's one Baltimore County, which surrounds Baltimore City is another one. But if you if you pull up Maryland on a map, Baltimore City, Baltimore County, Anne Arundel County, Howard County are within, depending on where you're going, they're within 10 minutes of each other. All through all of those counties are within 10 minutes of each other. So when I'm saying Howard County, don't assume that it's 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 this hour. It's an hour away. Howard County is like 15 minutes away, depending on where you're going, how you get there. And so in Howard County, there is a huge Korean community in D.C., in and around D.C. and uh, Montgomery County and um Howard County to part of Howard County, but mostly Montgomery. There's a huge um, Eritrean community. Um, And the list goes on. There's a huge Ethiopian, actually back into Baltimore, there's a a growing Ethiopian community here in Baltimore. It's larger in D.C., but it's a big, it's growing here in Baltimore. And so forget what you see on TV. Baltimore is a culturally rich community. And it's also one of those type of cities where you can stay in your own neighborhood and never really, never really engage with people who don't look like you if you don't want to or or not significantly. And so we're a small landmass. We don't we have less landmass. We have the same amount of people as Kansas City, Missouri, where I'm from, actually. But Kansas City, Missouri has more landmass. So you never really understand how many it's essentially we have essentially the same number of people in Baltimore it's just it feels like there are more people in Baltimore because we're on top of each other it's less landmass and so here's my point there is a huge there are huge populations of different faiths 
different cultures that makes Baltimore the melting pot that it is. Again, you don't think of it that way because that's not what you see on TV. It is a majority black city. It is. Follow. It's like 64% black. Followed by black are other brown people. And then you've got white people. So Baltimore, for all intents and purposes, is a majority people of color city. It's predominantly people of color. And so because there's so many different cultures uh, and communities represented here, there are also huge religious communities that are that are mentioned uh, that live here and practice and worship here, too. There are tons, but the largest are the Abrahamic religions. There's a huge there are huge Obviously, there are huge, well, you wouldn't know this. The first Catholic church in the United States was right here in um, Baltimore. First Basilica, not first Catholic church, but first Basilica or big time. Actually, I don't know if you're Catholic and you're listening to this, you might be able to correct me, but Google it. One of the oldest, if not the oldest cathedrals in the United States is right here in Baltimore. So the Christian population is huge. The majority of the schools at one point here in Baltimore were Catholic schools. So I don't know which one is number one or number two, but it's huge Christian, mostly Catholic, but huge Christian population here. There is also, again, not in any particular order, a huge Jewish population here. There are synagogues here whose congregations number in the thousands, congregants number in the thousands. And there are multiple. There's more than one whose congregation uh, numbers in the thousands. Um, And then there's also a huge Muslim faith community here. There where I live downtown, which will I'll bring it back to downtown. There are that I know of at least five mosques in my immediate vicinity. The largest mosque, which is what I said earlier, is Islamic Society Baltimore. It is the largest mosque in um, Central Maryland, I think. Huge. And it's like its own little compound. And that's where Adnan um, had spent his days because in, if you think of it this way, people tend to live not far from where they worship, right? If you're thinking religious folks, don't tend to live very far from where they worship. And so if you consider Park Heights, there's a part of Park Heights where there are at least one, two, three, there's like three large Jewish temples, probably four, but definitely three that I know of. Um, And so there's a huge Jewish population, actually Hasidic Jewish, maybe not Hasidic, Orthodox Jewish community lives around these these, uh, temples, synagogues. And then in the Muslim faith, the same is, is true for the Muslim faith community in Islamic society, Baltimore, because so many people go there and actually there are other mosques that are in Baltimore County. Islamic society, Baltimore is just is just on the it's on the line between Baltimore City, Baltimore County, um, which a lot of things tend to be. But anyway, because like the city, it's rent is too doggone high Um and it's the real estate is too hard to come by for big congregations to dwell in the city. So you go to the, the outskirts. And so there are at least two humongous um, Muslim faith congregations that I know about 
Um, one is on the east, the, the east side of uh, the county and one is on the west side and the one Islamic Society of Baltimore is the one on the west side. And anyway, so huge Muslim faith, Jewish faith, Christian faith communities, huge um, cultural communities here of new immigrants, many of whom come from the Middle East, also come from um, Asian communities, but largely for whatever reason, Korean community members are big number or in, in large numbers here. Um, and you fill in the blank, blank reason. It's probably the same reason why um, Latinx community members are here in, in large numbers and um, even Middle Eastern and North African, well, just, just African community uh, country or folks from African countries are here because there's, there's some sort of, you know, family, first off family without question, family move here and then they turn around and then because one person is here, it's like, it's, it's just like, um, the great migration. You got one cousin that lives in Chicago who, who goes and makes it in Chicago your the niece nephew can come there too you and so you build your connection so that's how immigration happens and so that's probably why it's just it started with a few families and it just built from there but all of these different communities have their own newspapers black community has the afro black community has the afro community korean community has its uh newspaper um the Muslim faith community has its new uh, newspaper and I'm not talking about the final call either. I'm talking about, um, uh, there's literally a cultural newspaper. I don't think that, um, ISB supports it in any way. Well, they probably support it, but I don't think it's, it's, um, managed by them. I just think it's a cultural newspaper, but here's my point. All of these communities come together with all the different baggage that all we, we all come with. And then you add on top of it poverty, racism, classism, poor policing, poor infrastructure. And you get situations where you find a teenage woman who has been victimized, poorly buried in a park, a forested area, that a park in on the outskirts of Baltimore City. And then, looking back at the case, I'm reminded of two things. I don't live far. I I drive past Lincoln Lincoln Park. I, I forget how you actually say it, but I just say it like the natives do. I drive past Lincoln Park all the time to get to Randallstown. Randallstown is where my chapter is based out of and we often meet in the Randallstown Community Center. Pull that up on the map. Again, I live downtown. And so I pass by Lincoln Park all the time. I wasn't here in 1999. I was back in in Missouri in 1999. But I remember being a high schooler. I remember, I remember, you know, knowing what that was like, being aware that, of course, I wouldn't be able to be give my own self an alibi because I didn't like to, I didn't remember things. I was just kind of assuming that my life was, you know, nothing bad would ever happen to me because I never thought of it. 
I was living in the moment and the bad things that happened had to do with boys or friends or tests. And occasionally I was thinking about my future. I wasn't thinking about anything like anything would any harm would come to me or my friends. And in even my husband thinking about him, like he was worried about people getting into getting into fights at school, not and he was worried about getting into fights at school and knew people who had passed away. So maybe his life was a little maybe his thoughts were a little bit different than mine. But there was still an air of naivete around him saying, oh, that happened to them. That could never happen to me. As many times as hubby and I have talked about this particular case, one thing I can say without with certainty is that's not something that he ever really thought about. He knew that other people had passed away through gun violence or, or by other means. People was, but, but all of those folks were out there. You know what I mean? Like in a matter of speaking, he kind of chalked it up to where well, you put yourself in that position. But none of us, like... I had classmates who passed away and it was a tragedy and we cried in school like like we were kids and they teenagers and they passed away and it was a tragedy and we cried and then we moved on there but but we moved on again these are freak accidents the the one I'm thinking of he fell off of a four-wheeler he fell off of a four-wheeler and the head it sustained such a bad head injury that they had to induce a medical coma. And then he was, his prognosis was that he was never going to regain consciousness. And so his parents had to make the decision that no parent should have to make. But we deemed it that was a freak accident. Thinking about Hubby and him growing up in Baltimore where... Even though I lived in the country and guns were used all the time and it was not abnormal for someone to be engaged in and, and, and you know, be, be held up at gunpoint or something like that. It was more prevalent in the city because there's just more people. But even him... His thinking was, oh, well, you know, they were out there in the street. They were banging in the street. You know, they thought they were hard. They thought they were tough guys. And so that's what they, they, that's what they got. Not that they deserved it, but that they put themselves in, like, there was a reason for that to happen. And even in the case of my friend who passed away, the, the reason was he was on a four-wheeler being reckless. So there was a reason. So I was never confronted with the idea in 1999 when I would have been a teenager that the rationale for somebody's life being taken would never be known. That didn't compute in my mind. I, it just not something I thought about. And so to be Heyman's friends, Heyman Lee's friends, and to live in that space where you just don't know what happened as a teenager and then to be told this person that you were crying with who also had a deep connection with Heyman Lee is accusing of, uh, accused of being the reason why she's no longer here 
What do you do with that? What do you how what do you do with that? You 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 believe the adults. I couldn't imagine. Like I, I know I, my prayer is that teenagers are a little bit better now equipped now to not just blindly believe leadership, but like interrogate and investigate it. But certainly my natural instinct as a teenager would have been, well, they know what they're doing. I didn't have the experiences I have now. And so bringing it full circle, I don't live, I had jury duty. And I think I've talked about this before. I had jury duty maybe six or so months ago and I walked to it because I'm literally less than a 10 minute walk to the courthouse, the courthouse, Clarence Mitchell courthouse where Adnan Syed was transported to from Cumberland, the the, uh, penitentiary that he was locked up in 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 Cumberland, Western Maryland. And listening to Sarah Koenig's story, hearing the crowd roar at his release. When I saw, before I heard her story, I remember reading the report and I was working from home that day. And there was a piece of me that was like, oh, shoot, let me be here because this is historic and I want to witness this justice being done. But then on the other hand, I was conflicted because my thing is like, hey, Min Lee's murder is still not solved. One of the most high profile cases to come out of Maryland, Baltimore, and it's still not solved. It wasn't high profile at the time. Or maybe it was. I don't know. I wasn't here in 1999. I just know that I was conflicted. And ultimately, if I had gone to see him, witness him being released to his family, I don't know. I don't know if I would be would be conflicted talking to you now. Maybe I would be. But. I just know that. I know his family has been considerably changed. But he can still be hugged by the people who love him. I want justice done. The fact that the fact that Adnan was able to be freed largely because one of the officers who did the interviewing of him and the witnesses was accused of coercing witnesses back in 1999 with other in other cases he was confu- he was accused of acting improperly and as a result 
the people who he his testimony and his work helped put people away those people were released at least one person was released and so Adnan should have the same should have the same um, be afforded the same opportunity but it also makes me mad because again Heyman Lee's killer is still not in, in jail at least not in jail for taking her life the family still doesn't have closure and for what? Like, if Adnan didn't do it, then her killer is still on the loose or at the least not, has not been punished for her, for, for, doing, for taking her life. And so where do we go now? And according to Sarah Koenig's report and the, the news reports, Baltimore City Police Department is putting another detective back on it. 1999? You're going to work a case from 1999? What is Jay going to Jay, the guy that whose testimony we all heard from the story and probably any people who were connected to the trial, maybe attended the trial, listening to him. You knew he was full of bull. That sounded messed up. He even had in Sarah Koenig's interview or her podcast serial. Some of his friends said Jay be lying. Looking back. It's possible, Jay. So here's the deal. It's possible. It's very possible. Adnan Sayed had nothing to do with Heyman Lee's uh, death, murder. And that Jay, Jay knew nothing about any of it, but that two things. He wanted to be in the middle of something to make himself feel important. So he makes up these fantastic lies, which again, his, his people corroborated. Or something real sinister in the show what Sarah Koenig reported was that what her reporting discovered was that it was possible that Jay could have been jealous of Adnan and his relationship with Stephanie Jay's girlfriend at the time and maybe he thought something improper happened between the two of them and Jay said, you know what? I'm going to show him. I'm going to use this opportunity to put myself in the middle of something. And I'm also going to bury, bury Adnan in the process. He has, he's lied. He's stuck to the lie for so long already. There's no point in him. What does he gain by saying that he was lying? He doesn't have anything to gain. He has everything to lose. He gains peace of mind. He gains peace of mind to know that he can right a wrong. But the other part of that is now he can be charged with, he can go to prison. He can go to prison or at least get some sort of criminal charge and be convicted of a criminal charge because isn't lying, um, obstructing justice, isn't that like a, or false report, something like that? That's a criminal offense. So anyway, Jay doesn't benefit by telling the truth. But the way our legal system works, there's enough doubt around Adnan that maybe this won't ever come up again against Adnan. But, and, and again, if he's, 
if he's not if he's not guilty, which again, the evidence is flimsy about him at best. If he's not guilty, then who is? And again, according to Sarah Kane's reporting, there are two folks, there are two witness, um, two suspects, one of whom they actually did interview, another one that they interviewed, they interviewed one and nothing came of it. There was another one that they didn't even interview. But both of them had method, uh, they had, what is it, motive and means. It just feels like sloppy reporting. Not sloppy reporting, sloppy detective work. And another example of just bad policing. And a reason, yeah, well, the thing that I really wanted to say was reason why we need to renew our mind on our justice system as a whole and policing. Because it's so doggone subjective. Do it sound like McGilligan-Berry and those other people had their mind made up. The other detective had their mind made up about what they think they saw and they could not see anything else. Which was another idea that was brought up in Sarah Canning's reporting. I don't know. It's just unsettling. This whole thing, like, I'm not, I'm not totally happy and I'm not totally sad i'm in the middle 20 plus years of adnan's life have been behind bars he's essentially starting fresh and Heyman lee's case is still unsolved what was considered solved for 20 years is unsolved now And listening to Sarah Koenig's report, this latest episode, which is probably the final. I think she won't go back to this unless something else happens, something major happens. But really, the subject matter was Adnan and Heyman, Heyman Lee. So unless there's a conviction, she's not going back to this. And who knows when that'll be. But... I just don't know what we learn from this. Somebody's getting arrested right now for a crime they didn't commit. Maybe not here in Baltimore. Maybe not even in the United States. Somebody's getting somebody's getting arrested for a crime they didn't commit. Somebody just got commit, convicted for a crime they did not commit. Maybe they're still holding out hope because it's still fresh. Somebody's celebrating the conviction, the arrest. And that's, it's, that, that's the thing that's frustrating to me because everybody thinks they're right. But according to what, like, where's the, again, it feels so subjective. Like in defense, you, you kind of need to be subjective, but you kind of need to be not subjective. You need to be realistic, but like you need to be fighting for your client. On the state side, you need to be fighting for the truth. If you're a police officer, you need to be fighting for the truth. If you're a detective, you need to be fighting for the truth. Not for your version of the truth, but reality. And that's the thing that doesn't sit well with me. But I mean, how do you overcome that? I don't have the answer. I know I don't have the answer. But I know that, again, somebody just got convicted 
Somebody got convicted yesterday. Maybe there's no court today. Somebody got convicted yesterday for a crime they did not commit. Somebody somewhere got convicted yesterday for a serious crime they did not commit. And the consequence of that is going to change their entire life. What we know is... I don't want to say the other thing. I'll just leave it a conviction. But we understand how punitive and how severe the punishments in the United States can be. But we also know how severe punishments can be across the globe. But some people have served some some le- some heavy consequences have been levied against people who did not deserve them. What do we do that what's where's the I don't know. I don't know. I it just it it makes you kind of just want to It just makes you be more critical and and I hope it makes everyone take a step back and be more thoughtful. Because you're not only are you impacting individuals' lives, but you're impacting their families' lives as well. Anybody, if you know anybody who's been, who's had a, had a loved one in prison, if, if their family is tight and then a loved one goes to prison, that family is in prison with them, spiritually. They're right there with them. Worrying, trying not to worry too much, checking in. It's like the family does time when an individual does time. And God forbid if the punishment is worse than that. You can't say sorry behind that. There is no apology that will, there's no apology that will give Adnan 20 years back. His, the 20 years of his life back. 22 excuse me this is 22 there's no there's no apology that will give him those years back and there is absolutely no apology that will bring Haman Lee back there is justice and so I hope justice is done I do hope that they can these newer capable um, detectives can follow up on these uh, suspects and that they won't make another mis- they won't make another Adnan size mistake. Yeah, or at least uh, not Adnan size mistake, but you know what I mean. Uh, a mistake like that didn't even feel like a mistake though. Feels like they they. I pray that these folks are more discerning and better detectives. Anyway, but that's that on that. Um, But I felt like I needed to talk about it because, again, I drive by Lincoln Park all the time and have done since 2008. And I have occasion to go to the courthouse because of jury duty. And I live within walking distance of it now and have done for two years. And it's just interesting just a, it's just a, a cold reminder of how people's lives can change in an instant, not only in the commission of a crime, 
but at the stroke of a pen or the utterance of a verdict. So anyway, all right, but that's enough of that. I will switch um, in the next segment. I will not be sitting in my car because again, I don't know if you can hear the road noise or whatever, but I'm literally sitting in the parking lot of my uh, building parking garage. I'm on the top floor of my parking garage. Um, and somebody's on, I think it's the, um, the Israelites. I think they're on the, um, they're on the bullhorn preaching. And so you can hear them. You can also hear loud music being played by car people who are riding around in cars and stuff. So anyway, um, so hopefully when in the next segment, it'll be a little bit quieter, but I'm going to talk all about Interview with the Vampire, the new AMC series that is based on the Anne Rice novel. Or the Anne Rice books, rather, not novel, but books. Oh, no, it's, inter- it's just Anne Rice novel, Interview with the Vampire. Um, I'm going to talk about episode one, though. Even though by the time you're listening to this, there are other episodes that are out. And depending on whether or not you pay for AMC Plus, you've seen many, many episodes, if not all of them. No, 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 you get early access to the episode. So, by this time, you will at least seen episode episode two will be out for everybody else. Or depending on if you have Amazon or um, AMC Plus, you might even be on episode three. But anyway, I'm going to talk about, only about episode one and all of the, you know, alleys and pathways it takes me to in talking about a story based in New Orleans. All right. So stay tuned. Okay, so remember how I told you I was only going to talk about the first episode of Interview with the Vampire? I lied. I'm going to talk about the first and second. Um, By the time you're listening to this, both are out and the third episode is coming up. So, um, and I think it's relevant too and probably makes for a richer conversation or at least a richer listening experience um, because it'd be more fun for me to talk about because essentially the way the um, series is set up which I think it's a really good idea that this was turned into a series and not just a movie because movies rush. Series, if you do them right, you can slow it down, take your time, really spell some things out because it feels like, and again, I don't want to draw a, well, I mean, I think I, I think I have to. I have not read the book, but I've watched the 94 film and what I can talk about in comparison, even though, Anne Rice did not like aspects of the film initially or the casting of some of the um, um, lead characters initially. She grew to appreciate it. And so I imagine, you know, the, the writer has its place and their intent has its place. But once you put media and art out into the world, it, it's kind of up for interpretation and other people to take and make their own as well. And so... I appreciate the differences here. Again, I stress these are not just arbitrary 20, you know, 23rd, are we in the 22nd century? 22nd century, whatever. It's it's not 
just arbitrary updates for no reason. These have context. And remember, this show is an update, uh, an updated interpretation of the 1994 interpretation, uh, adaptation of the book. But the way that they aged it up is relevant. It has meaning. And I still think there are some artistic choices that the show took that the movie did well, did also that I think still work. So again, I have not read the book. So I imagine if you did, you probably have a stronger opinion on both of these things. Um, And if you've ever made it through your life, and, and I don't know how this could happen, except if you're a young person, reading the book for the first time, having never watched the 94 film, and then beginning to watch the series, I wonder how you feel. I wonder how you feel. But anyway, I'll jump in and I'll say, I'll just say this before I get into the particulars. Episode one of the series is The Hunt. Episode two is The Conquering. And I'll go into why I think that, and I probably will forget um, what I called episode one and episode two, because I'm not even using their show titles. I'm just saying that's how it feels to me. The hunt and then the conquering of the soul, the conquering of the person, um, for many reasons that we'll get into in a minute. But the show, I, mean, I know you've heard this by now, but I'll just be real clear about it. So it stars Jacob Anderson, Sam Rue, Jacob Anderson as Louis, Sam Reed as Lestat, Eric Bogan, Boz, Bog, how do you say this last? Bogosian? Yeah, probably Bogosian. As Daniel Malloy, who is the reporter. And I think it's the Daniel Malloy, I think that was the name of Christian Slater's character. I never got his name. I only remember Lestat and um, Louis and the little girl, Kirsten Dunn's um, character. But anyway, um, Daniel Malloy plays the reporter. Uh, no, excuse me. Eric Bogosian plays the reporter, Daniel Malloy. Um, Claudia, that's who it is. Um, Bailey Bass plays Claudia, which will come up in a minute. And I don't know how that will. I might be tripping, but I don't know how Claudia comes into the picture. Um, just yet. But anyway, um, Colleen Coleman plays Grace. The, is it the Pont du Lac? The Pont du Lac? Is, is that the dude's name? Anyway, it doesn't matter. I'm going to keep going. Um, which is his sister. Oh, and Azad Zaman, Asad Zaman plays Rashid, which is Louis' modern companion. I don't know if it's his modern companion, it's his modern assistant. Um, but yeah, so the first two episodes, we spend a lot of time with Louis, um, Lestat, Daniel Malloy. I don't think we've been introduced to Claudia before or yet. Grace, again, Grace, which is um, uh, Louis' sister, and Az- Assad, or excuse me, Rashid, um, who is... Um, Louis' person of sorts. Anyway, so episode one, 
and this is free to everybody. And, and this comes on AMC. Oh, well, hold on. I didn't do what I was supposed to. So this thing comes on Sunday nights at AMC, I think at 1030. Yeah, it's like 1030 on AMC. Um, the, I don't remember when the first episode premiered, but let me, let me go into the, let me go into the deets right quick. Won't take me but a sec. Um, and while I'm doing that, I will say that people are genuinely raving over, um, Jacob Anderson's Louis because it's, he's, he is good. It's well acted. It's well acted in parts. And let me just tell you, an actor who is good at accents is, I imagine it's difficult to be really good at accents to the point where you're not being disrespectful or that your own accent doesn't slip out occasionally. I can't stand when I hear the actor's accent, their, their actual, their biological accent. Well, not biological, you know what I mean. The one that they crafted over years, their natural accent. I can't stand when I hear it when they're playing someone else. Um, because I want you to work, I want you to, it's your job, dude. I want you to put in the work to make me forget so that I can just get lost in this character. Keanu Reeves is awful at accents. He don't do them no more. Um, to be honest with you, I love me some Idris Elba. I do. I do. His accent in The Wire wasn't horrible. It just... Mm-mm. Mm-mm. I don't even know what his accent it was, it was in Daddy's Little Girl because I never watched it, because, largely because I think he's fine. I think he's a good actor. But that accent, like, if, if you blow it in the accent, it blows the, it blows the experience for me. And so listening to his accent, it felt like he was really trying to go for that New York affect, but it felt like mushmouth a little bit, a little too mushmouth, if that makes any sense to you. It probably don't. But anyway, likewise, like when you get an actor who tries to have a typical English accent, even with my English ear, like English Amer- American English ear, when you p- try to... it. it you sound whack when you try to put on an act, like an English accent or, and I, and I apologize, uh, those folks listening to me from England. I know that there are different dialects and different communities that, whose English accent is different, but the typical accent that people try to put on, uh, English accent that they put on is that, that posh one, that, that fancy rich one. What is that? The, the, I can't call it. I can't call the name of it, but the the aristocratic one, the one almost sounding like, um, like from the crown or some junk like that, almost, but it sounds horrible. Or they try to do Cockney. Boy, they try to do Cockney and that sounds like A-A-V-E, to be honest with you. Like when somebody who doesn't speak A-A-V-E tries to do it, they get the syntax wrong. They get the phrasing wrong. They get the wrong emphasis and the wrong syllable. It's like, it sounds like that when somebody who clearly does not have a Cockney accent, even if they're from the UK, but clearly does not have a natural Cockney accent. When they try to put that on, it sounds terrible. And so anyway, accents tend to put me off, but Jacob Anderson, Grey Worm um, from Game of Thrones, his accent in the beginning, like his accent changes in the show. So like when he's with the reporter, 
um, his accent is different than when he's with Louis in the beginning. And that's because for a number of different reasons, we, what we know is, and I know that I haven't gone into the particulars, like I swore I, I planned to, but this is just so interesting to me. Um, okay. Let me, let me, let me just pause before I get too deep. So it's 6.5 out of 10 on IMDb, which is pretty typical. 98% fresh from Rotten Tomatoes. And let me just read right quick what folks are saying. And I'm talking about the series now. 98% um, average rating on the tomato meter and 74% audience score. And I bet you I know why the audience has it that low. Because it's a whole bunch of purists who are comparing the series to um, the movie. but And they probably hate the fact that Louis is black. Um, and that there are all these black people in the show and brown people just in general. So, um, and they're hating right now. So, but the hate, hate won't, won't, um, hate can't outlast love. So it's not stronger than it. So anyway, but, um, so this, the, this, well, shoot, you're not even going to give me, you're not even going to give me what the critics are saying. Nope. Oh yeah. Here, here's critical consensus. Um, with a playful tone and an expansive sweep that allows Anne Rice's gothic opus to mull like a chalice of blood, gross, mull like a chalice of blood, interview with the vampire puts a stake through concerns that this story couldn't be successfully resurrected. I don't know why you don't think that you could successfully resurrect a well-written story. In the hands of an artist and in the hands of gifted um, actors, you can do anything. This story is, it's set in New Orleans. If you have but the, a good amount of imagination, you can do just about anything. If you're a hack, you can't, and I can see how. I can see how it wouldn't be good. Again, we love making, uh, Hollywood, or, or at least entertainment industries, love making re- remakes of the thing that was successful the first time, but they always make poor remakes of them because if you are a hack, or excuse me, that was rude, if you are literally trying to recreate the formula, a lot of um, creativity goes out the window when you're trying to for- follow a, a cookie-cutter pattern. And art isn't like shoes. Well, movies aren't like shoes. TV shows should not be like shoes in that it's, it follows the same pattern over and over and over and over and over again. And then a new version of it comes out and then you follow the same pattern over and over and over and over again. Um, we're more sophisticated than that. Good stories are more sophisticated than that. And so Interview with the Vampire, there are many imitators. True Blood is one of them I would, I would consider. Um, Vampire Diaries is another imitator. But there's only one baddie. And this is the baddie of the franchise because it was built on really good writing. And so anyway, so anybody else who says that the show isn't good, you being a hater, you, you, you hating the fact that there's diversity in this show, which there should have been diversity the whole time, because we're literally talking about supernatural beings in one of the most culturally diverse places in the whole country and one of the most culturally diverse places on the globe. What are you doing? What are you doing? Have you been to New Orleans outside of Mardi Gras? Outside of a football game? Have you left? Have you left um, outside the downtown or the quarter when you did go? 
Have you seen have you seen what what New Orleans looks like? It's very similar to what it, it it's not too daggone different. Remember, New Orleans was colonized by the French, Spanish, and the Dutch. And the, well, maybe not the Dutch, but like Dutch people were there. English, of course. And they brought in subjugated tons of people. So you had Native American uh, indigenous Americans, you had black Americans brought there against their will. Um, in addition to the Arcadians, in addition to um, all these other communities of people that, that just converged and coalesced at that harbor city. And the thing about it is every harbor city is diverse like that. Baltimore, a harbor city, rich history from the beginning, it was multi, it was diverse. I just don't know why Hollywood, well, I do know why Hollywood insists on making things look homogenous when they're not. But what it, if you know anything about New Orleans, this fits, this tracks, in fact, quite well. This new version, that old version, I'm glad it was an update because that was, looking back on it, that aspect of it was trifling. But we'll move on. So anyway, if you don't like this show, there's, no, I, there's not a ton of reason not to like it at this moment. There might be some criticisms that you have of it, and, and those criticisms might be well taken. But if those criticisms are rooted in the fact that, that um, Louis is black or that Louis now lives in um, the United Arab Emirates and he is uh, surrounded by a bunch of brown people, I think you're tripping. I think you really do. I think you really do need to check yourself. You tripping. Anyway, um, so uh, you know this story. So anyway, that's the critic's response. 6.5 out of IMDb, 98% fresh from Rotten Tomatoes, and 88% of Google users like this. Again, I feel like that's too low. Y'all are hating. Because if you enjoy, here's the deal. If you don't like vampire flicks, this ain't for you. But if you like vampire flicks, there's not a lot for you to criticize. There is criticism, but there's not a ton for you to criticize. So if you think this is 88, I think that's still too low and you a hater. Anyway, um, so here's the synopsis for everyone who is new to this story, which feels ridiculous to me. But, you know, there, young people do exist. And 1994 was a very long time ago. So in the year 2022, the vampire Louis Dupont du Lac. Wait a minute. Then, then what's the old girl's name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dupont du Lac. Um, which is a very Creole name. Anyway, Louis de Point du Lac lives in Dubai and seeks to tell the story of his life after life, his life, af- his life or afterlife to a renowned journalist, Daniel Malloy. Beginning in the in 20th century New Orleans, we're in the 22nd century then. 20th century New Orleans. Are we in the 23rd? Whatever, it doesn't matter. Anyway, beginning in the early 20th century, century in New Orleans, Louis' story follows his relationship with the vampire Lestat. Lestat du Lioncourt. That's how you say Lioncourt. Lestat du Lioncourt and their formed family, including teen fledgling Claudia. Together, the vampire family endures immortality in New Orleans and beyond. As the interview continues in Dubai, Malloy discovers the truth behind Louis' story. So, for those of you who don't know the story, I'm just going to give you the bare bones. Louis, who is now Louis de Pont du Lac, um, was... Actually, is that his full name? I think that is his full name, Louis de Pont du Lac. It's his actual name. 
and Lestat du Lioncourt is his actual name too. It's just, we know them as Louis and Lestat. Anyway, um, and again, I never knew the reporter's name because I don't think it was relevant um, to the movie. I don't think it, nobody, nobody cared about Daniel. They cared about Louis and um, Lestat and, and Claudia, Claudia. Anyway, um, first episode of this show came out on October 2nd. Okay, so let me get into it. Oh, here's the other thing. So if you have AMC Plus, you are far ahead by now. But the rest of the peons, like me, are only on episode two. Y'all are probably, shoot, episode four at this point. I know because y'all be putting um, spoilers on TikTok, which I try to avoid which is hard sometimes, but nevertheless, I still do enjoy content about the show and context that's pulled from the film or is pulled from the book, but then also pulled from historical context. Anyhow, so for those of you who are not familiar with this story, Louis is a rich businessman. That point is clear. Lestat is a vampire, a very old vampire who's been traveling the world for 200 years, not 200 years. And Louis, Louis is relatively young, considered relatively young, but old enough to have had a life by now in the film. He's had a a child and a, a wife and a child who died in childbirth. Um, in the film, there are questions about Louis and why he has not married just yet, but there is a marriage. We'll get to that in a second. Um, in the film, Louis is a wealthy white landowner who was also a slave master. He owns a plantation. Um, and there's no getting around that. But remember, if you, well, if you're younger, then you don't know this. But if you're my age or older, you remember in the 90s where there was a lot of apologists, there was a lot of content that kind of colored slave owners as redemptive somehow. Like they saw the error of their ways and they just turned over a new leaf and released all their slaves and, and stuff like that because they just saw the cruelty that they endured. But, th- but that when they were slave masters, they were still better than other slave masters as if there's such a thing. If you're subjugating a person, what the heck is the difference between you and the next guy? Brutality? No, you're both brutal. You have different methods. You're still keeping people in captivity as if they're animals who, who, who don't deserve anyway, like your pets. Anyhow. So in the modern version, Louis is a black man with Creole roots, Creole, Google it. It's, I don't even know if that they're saying that he's Creole so much as what you know about black folks is, and I, I think a lot of white folks and people who are not a part of the African diaspora don't get in the United States, there are very few black people who don't also have other um, cultural heritages in their DNA. It's super duper rare. All of us, all of us have, well, most, many of us have white, usually English, Irish ancestry somewhere in our DNA. I happen to have 15% because my mother has. 20 to 30 percent 
because her father was biracial. And so that's where it comes from. That's where I, I literally looked, according to Ancestry anyway, I looked where my DNA, for the most part, came from and how it shook out. And although my father, whose ancestry, who's dark in complexion, my mama is light in complexion, very light in complexion. My daddy's very dark in complexion. Daddy even has 2% white in him and it is English. My mommy's um, background, why I can know where mine comes from, is because hers is Scotland and um, Northern Ireland. Because her, her last name, her last name is a very Irish, English last name. It's very, like, can't miss it. Daddy's last name is very English, so I understand why that little piece is there, but it's not much. And what that means is that at different times, at different times in each tree, there was a white branch put in there at different times. So mommy's just happened to be a little bit closer than daddy's. And then also genes, it'd be genetics too. But anyway, um, and how that thing shakes loose, but it's not an exact science. You you are 50% of your parents, but how that 50% manifests itself is different to, to a person. So anyway, um, but nevertheless, I just, the 90s version of this film is just so funny because all of the Creole folks were like mulatto. And even though Louis and his family are lighter and you can get the sense that they are Creole, meaning that they have... Native American, perhaps, and uh, ancestry, white, French, ancestry, heritage at a certain point. Um, probably even Jewish, because that was a, a whole thing there, too, in New Orleans. Um, which, by the way, my dad has Ashkenazi, uh, 1% Ashkenazi. So he's, sorry, 2% English, 1% Ashkenazi Jewish. He and his cousin, who are both extremely brown. I'm talking about brown, brown. Like... Anyway, real brown. Um, So again, you cannot tell by someone's color what their ethnicity is or I'm not going there. Anyway, you can't tell what you can't tell what their DNA back DNA background is. I'm not talking about culture, but their heritage background. You cannot tell that by by looking at a black person. You might be you might could do that with white people. I don't know that how you could specifically. I, maybe with the red recessive gene, I don't know. Anyway, but like you, you cannot tell that looking. You, you just can't. And so anyway, I'm going off on a tangent. I'm going to try to keep it, keep it cute. Um, but it's hard because this is such a, I love this adaptation more than the 94 film because the 94 film, although it was well acted, was a joke. The only thing that saved it to me was the, the, the acting of Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt. That's it. Everything else was a joke. Even Christian Slater was a little weird and a little bit of an afterthought, but maybe that's how he was written. Anyway, um, or Dan, Danny Malloy was written. That's, that's how it was written, to be like something like an afterthought in the vehicle for telling their story, Louis' story. Because again, the, the, the premise still lies on the fact that Danny, Daniel Malloy is telling the story of Louis and his relationship, so the story, the story of Louis' life and his relationship with Lestat and how this life that he's telling now begins. But, but in order to tell that story, you have to tell the beginnings. And so let me just leave 94 alone and go to 22. So in 22, 
uh, Louis is a pimp. No, he's not a pimp. He is own. He owns a brothel. He owns two brothels actually, in the the black side of the red light district. Because even in a cultural melting pot as unique as New Orleans, it was still segregated. It was still in the South. Um, and so at the turn of the century in 1910, when we meet, when, when Lestat begins to tell his, not Lestat, uh, when Louis begins to tell his story, he tells it as honestly as he can. And the fact remains, he was a gay man living in 1910 who, to make money for his, um, for his family after the death of his father, who was making all of the money and to keep house and body together, you know, body and soul together and the, and the house to keep up appearances and to keep them, keep his mother in the, in the home and their standing in the community. He is a brothel owner. He's a pretty successful brothel owner too. Like I said, he, he owns two of them. And he, in this cutthroat area that he's in, which is a real area that you could go to today, it looks dumb different, of course, and it's no longer the red light district, but anyway, um, in order to maintain these clubs and to make sure that people didn't run over him, he had to be pretty ruthless. Um, and here's where more of the story unfolds. So this is a, this is a, 19th century man, no, 20th century man, um, who cannot express his sexuality in the way that he wants. So he resorts to be the, being the hyper-masculine version of himself. Sound familiar? That's what men still do today because our society, specifically American society, does not allow, it's more forgiving, it's more accepting now than it was before, but nevertheless, toxic masculinity is still a big part of our culture. And so you do have to question <laughs> that it is still a thing for a man to be hyper-masculine to compensate for not feeling like he could truly be himself, which I ha- it has to be one of the loneliest places in the whole wide world to be, um, that you cannot be yourself, so you have to be something else and the, the hardest version of that so as to throw off suspicion. And we see this violent push and pull even as we 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 notice that Louis in trying to be this super masculine person and trying to evade suspicion from his family who knows but is ignoring um what they know to be true that their their loved one is gay um so even while he's trying to keep up appearances with morning with breakfast with the fam um, after having left the brothel at night. And I bet you he had the smell of the quarter all on him. But anyway, um, and you know what I'm talking about. If you've ever been in the French Quarter and then you smelled your shoes, the next day, it stinks. It do. You need to hose them off. You need to take your shoes off at the door so you can hose them off in the morning. But moving on, it stinks. It do. Next time you're there, smell the quarter. Really smell it after some hours. And then go go out to Jackson Square and smell yourself. Smell your shoes. Smell just anyway. It smells nasty. It's smell like the quarter, which is hundreds of years of stench. Anyway, um, but moving on. So 
you know, but he's trying to keep up appearances and everybody lying. You, he lying about who he is and they lying that they don't know who he really is. And, and everybody keeping up appearances except for his brother, which we'll come back to in a minute. But anyway, all the while he's walking around trying to perpetrate this fraud and doing it quite well because he's a successful man who contributes to the church um, and is respected in the seedy part of community and is also um, because of him being a very successful um, whole house owner, um, his status and his money has afforded him opportunities to be around tables of rich white people who during the daytime would not hobnob with him, but at night he, they will because, you know, they perpetrating too. They're perpetrating a fraud as well. So anyway, so all while he's keeping up these appearances all while being stopped expertly by the vampire Lestat. Lestat, who I can't tell if his accent is like Bavarian or something like that. It's like European. I don't read it to be a French accent, though. I read it to be like a European accent that feels like it's from like Belgium or something like that. So he speaks French, but he also speaks other languages, too. Um, Like German or whatever. That's the only thing I can describe. But I think I might have missed it. Um, But anyway... The guy that played, well, anyway, so Lestat comes on the scene and he's treated like a rich white man. And um, that he is, and he's floating around doing what rich white people do, which white men have always done, which is acted like they owned everything because their money gave them entree into just about any circle they wanted to be in, including these little, uh, in and around these little black hoe houses. But he didn't go in the hoe house because he wanted, he was stalking Louis. And so he was stalking him, obviously, on the streets so that so as to not draw attention, because the minute that he steps into these brothels, it becomes Louis's business and he wants to stalk um, Louis without being seen. So and he's successful at doing that, except when he wants to reveal himself. But actually, that's still success because he's only seen when he wants to be seen. And so he reveals himself in this parlor where Louis goes to essentially go visit his beer. There's a particular um, a sex worker who wants, who is sought after by Louis because she's uh, black too. And Louis can go in there and just be with her. Um, and that's helps him to keep up this facade that he's been working on. And so, uh, Lestat knows that because again, he's a very expert hunter and confronts him and, and emasculates him, but then also entrances him and then begins to entice him and coerce him into, I don't know why I've used all those words to say, he tried to convince old dude, he tried to convince Louis to, like he, he put his game down. He essentially laid his game down. I want you to be with me, but he didn't say it. He didn't say it outright. He was cool with it. So at first he just, he just sucked him in and then let him go. And then stuck around and kept showing up. And then suck him in and gave him some of the goods and then let him go. And then because Louis was conflicted, and unfortunately this was on the heels, he was conflicted and he thought he was going to let this little thing go because they had a moment. You watch the show, you know that they have a moment. Whereas in the film, it's implied that perhaps they're a little, they're, you know, that, that uh, Lestat's interest in Louis is a little more than just 
friends, but it's it's implied that they, that he has a romantic interest in Louis. In the show, it's bold. Again, Lestat is courting. He's hunting, but he's a, he's acting as if he's courting Louis. He's actually hunting him to own him, which we know Lestat's nature. Lestat is a vampire, a vindictive, manipulative vampire who wants what he wants and he wants to own. He wants to possess Louis, but not in, he doesn't see it as the same way of, of ironically, uh, a slave, uh, a plantation owner to human capital, like an, an enslaved human. He doesn't see it that way, but that's essentially, that's essentially what he's doing. He's coercing Louis into lifelong forced companionship, which what is that? He's not getting paid for it. He can't say it's love, although those feelings are tangled up in there, as we see, because again, they have a romantic interlude, and then Louis, because he's a closeted man, and Lestat is not, but also Lestat is white and rich. Lestat can live however he chooses to live, although he can't be so silly as to cause suspicion, raise alarms to himself. He can't be openly um, show his affection towards another man. He has to do it behind closed doors because he too might raise too much suspicion. He's not a fool. But Lus- but Louis definitely is going through it in this moment because largely because, again, he already recognizes that he's a rich black man, but he's a black man nonetheless. And now you put on top of it that he's gay, which is truly not accepted. So double, uh, accepted, so double whammy. So... Louis has this interlude with him, his favorite uh, sex worker, and um, Lestat, where Lestat takes a little bit of his blood and drains him a little bit and gets him, gets Louis even more caught up. But Louis, because he doesn't want to admit this about himself, begins to ignore Lestat. And I want to pause and say that this show also does something really good in terms of why Louis was driven to Lestat, because again, the the romantic interlude was not enough to drive Louis towards Lestat. And in fact, it drove him away from Lestat um, because that was Louis's pattern. The thing that drove Louis to Lestat was, believably or not, Louis's brother passing. Now here's the story on that. Louis's brother, whose name I cannot remember right now, was a religious zealot, but his zealotry was was masking the fact that he was living with a mental health condition. But again, like many other things that 20th century folks just weren't uh, equipped to handle, it, he was probably, it's, it almost, in the way the actor plays this role of Louis' brother, he is seeing visual hallucinations, probably hearing auditory hallucinations. It's not a religious experience. It is literally him having episodes, uh, probably of mania, probably of a number of different mental health conditions. Again, I'm not a clinician, so I'm just, you know, just throwing some stuff out there. But it's clear that he was experiencing mental health conditions and he had been hospitalized a couple of times before. And so what the family had gone to do was get him pay this Catholic parish a large sum of money to essentially keep 
keep their bro- the, the brother company. And so this comes to a head. There have been many, one of the nights where Lestat is stalking Louis, he has an altercation with his brother where he unfortunately has to pull a knife on him um, to get him out of the street and to get back home because his brother had just gotten so wound up because that was the reaction to someone who was experiencing a mental health situation or at least an episode that to like threaten them with violence and to scare them away. Now, it's not a perfect interpretation, but you get the idea that his brother is living with a mental health condition, or at least I do. And unfortunately, so what ends up happening? The thing that drives Louis to Lestat is at the wedding, the night of the morning after the wedding, uh, his sister's wedding, uh, Louis's wedding. Um, Louis and hold on. Now I need, I need to know. I got to know. What is Louis's brother's name? We don't know. Great. And I'm not going to go deeper. It's not here. Anyway, the night of Grace, uh, uh, Louis's sister Grace's uh, wedding, or the morning after, and I'm talking about wee hours of the morning, Louis and his brother climb to the top of the family home um, as the servants are clearing up the the backyard, clearing up all the old dishes and stuff like that and, and putting all the, the fixtures and stuff away. Because the the wedding, the reception at least, was in the backyard of the family estate, which was a, it's a beautiful estate in in New Orleans. So anyway, and so you get the sense that they have literally stayed up all night, partying, having fun. They've just seen the last guest go home. There wasn't TV back in 1910, and so they could have ragers like this. Polite society could have all night ragers and then their version of a rager, and then go home when the sun comes up. And so we find Louis and his brother atop the home, the family home, just reminiscing and chatting. And they have a sweet moment as brothers. And the younger brother says, I love you. And Louis says, I love you back, but he's not paying attention. And his brother gets up and walks off the roof. And the inevitable happens and it tears the family up. And the mother instantly blames Louis for the death because she can't and she she can't comprehend that she can't she can't comprehend. And there is a an aspect of Christian belief that says if you ever committed suicide and I don't believe this, but that if you ever took your own life that your salvation would be in jeopardy. And so with this as her backdrop of her, of her grief, she, her grief turns to anger and her grief, her anger is pointed at Louis. Louis, who already has issues with self-loathing, now really loathes himself because while he knows he's not the cause of his brother's death, he, he has that guilt of, oh, I should have known. I should have known better. And then his mother is now blaming him and his sister is trying to console her but also trying to console her mother and also grieving herself while also still trying she literally just got married the night before 
And so anyway, so this incident where his mother pushes him away, his father, his brother is dead. His mother pushes him away now and he's in intense grief at the home, at the, at, before the repass and at the gravesite, Lestat, having been ignored by Louis, has a temper tantrum and decides to use his dark gifts to call Louis to him. And he does in the most weird, gruesome way. Um, he doesn't harm Louis, but he harms people that Louis was in contact with. And at the altar of this church, Louis, who's no longer religious, because the years and being jaded have taught him that, um, he proposes not marriage, but lifelong partnership to Louis. And Louis, in his grief, this man is literally at his feet. This is a seemingly powerful man, this monster, who's also beautiful to him, who's also, he's attracted to, who's also doting on him, is literally, this white man is groveling at his feet. And in his grief, in the irrational thinking in his grief and despair, He's entranced by, he, he's, he's hooked. He's hooked. And so he accepts Lestat's proposal. And in doing so, Lestat turns him. And in the second episode, it's all about Louis coming into his own, or dying essentially to his old self and becoming this new vampire, this vampire. And navigating life over the next couple of years as a vampire and what that all means. Um, meanwhile, coming into his powers as a vampire, Lestat is trying to teach, but Lestat is not a very good teacher. At the end of the day, he just wanted Louis as a companion to be his plaything forever because that's Lestat. Again, for as, as likable as this actor tries to play him at the end of the day Lestat is Lestat is a greedy selfish human being a vampire and he gonna do what he want to do for him that's never gonna change and so anyway so we see that Lestat is trying to teach but he's actually kind of bored with it and Yeah, there, there's a moment where there's an exchange between Danny, Daniel Malloy and uh, Louis, um, which is really interesting. So that we get more conversations between Daniel Malloy and, and Louis. We also get Lestat being bored with teaching. We also get um, Louis still trying to hang on to his mortal life with his family not yet letting his sister know what happened, but still, he's very close to his sister. That's his only sibling. He loves her. She's the one person that has never rejected him and actually never made him feel bad. We, we get the sense that she's always known, but she never said anything that, that Louis was gay. But that's her brother and she loves him dearly. And, and in return, he loves her equally as much. And so we see that their relationship is growing. And she sees that something's wrong and something has changed in him. His mother's still holding disdain for him, but she recognizes that she, he's the reason why she still doesn't have to work, but is still in her home. 
And so she's tolerating him, but the, the tolerance is kind of palpable at this point. Like it's a, it's a faint tolerance. And so the second episode is just a setup. So the first episode was the conquer was the hunt and the turn. And the first, the second episode is the conquering. And again, Lestat's true nature is coming out. But also Louis is trying to figure out, he's still caught in between these two worlds and he's still trying to figure out where do I go from here? And I know I spent a lot of time talking about episode one because I feel like that setup is so bomb because episode two is the pendulum is swinging up. And there's some things that I left out, but that you got to watch it. There's some things I left out in the first episode, but you got to watch it too. But this show, vampires just, the concept of vampires frightened me because they've lived long enough to know all of the tricks. And they're just jaded enough to do reckless things because they're bored. Which means for a cocktail, uh, just a disastrous cocktail, when you consider they are supreme beings who are immortal and you're not. And so no matter how powerful you are, they can use you like a plaything and throw you away. Which is what we see Lestat do. Never forget, even though the film and the TV show are differ drastically, Lestat is still Lestat. And Louis is still Louis, where he still is still close enough to his humanness that he has not become jaded. And so his quest, he's moody. He's moodier in the series, which you'll see. But he's also still his human. He's still he, he's st- more human, I think, um, in the show. And so anyway, it's interest. It's an interesting watch. I invite you to watch it. It comes on 1030 on AMC. Um, if you have AMC Plus, you're watching. You shoot. You probably on episode five by now. But everybody else is on episode two. And we're awaiting episode three this coming Sunday. Anyway. So, yeah, watch this show. I think it's good. Um it's interesting to talk about, and I just love the TikTok uh, breakdowns on it. As long as they're not spoilers, I love the TikTok breakdowns. Anyway, but that's that on that. I've talked enough. I appreciate you deeply for listening. I also appreciate you for sharing and rating this show favorably and sharing this with anybody else that if you don't feel like rating it and leaving positive reviews, that you're sharing this show with somebody that you think might, might dig it this episode or any other episodes with people that might dig it because that ultimately helps me to continue doing this thing that I've been doing as a hobby for four years now, five years now, and that I will continue to do until it's no longer fun for me to do. But right now it's still fun. So anyway, take care of yourself. I will briefly next episode talk about the mole before I get into my other spooky films. But yeah, I really want to talk about that because that show is fascinating. Anyway, until next time, take care.